Okay. Okay, so um, shalom and welcome to this week's lecture. And it is titled The Peaceful Warrior. And as always, we'll start with a modern day issue. And this week's modern day issue is about the peaceful warrior. So in a certain sense, life is meant to be lived as a war. And I mean this on the spiritual level. Dawning back to the birth of our nation, when our matriarch Rachel was pregnant and she went to the prophet because of her immense pregnancy pains. So the prophet told her, and I quote to you a verse from Genesis, two nations are in your womb and two kingdoms will separate from your innards and one kingdom will become mightier than the other and the elder will serve the younger. This, we are taught, exists within each and every one of us. There is the kingdom of Esau, referred to as the evil inclination or as the animalistic soul. And then there is the kingdom of Jacob, referred to as the good inclination or the godly soul. Now, our sages teach us that, and one kingdom will become mightier than the other kingdom. What does that mean? It means that both kingdoms cannot simultaneously be mighty, nor coexist as one in peace. Our mission in life is to make sure that the elder, Esau, the evil inclination, the animalistic soul, will serve the younger, Jacob, the good inclination, the godly soul. So there is always a war going on between the two voices within us, the Yetzahara and the Yetzetov, the good inclination and the bad inclination. Now, the war between these two kingdoms is an obligatory war and not a permissible war, meaning voluntary, not obligatory. And living one's entire life waging a war can lead to battle fatigue. Is there another way? And thus, in this lecture, we will explore the way of the peaceful warrior. This lecture is based primarily on a mimer mystical teaching of the Rebbe that the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat in 1965, exploring the spiritual dimension of spiritual warfare and the peaceful warrior. Okay, let's get into the introductions. The first introduction is about two wars. The Torah commands us upon the laws of two types of wars. One is called the obligatory war, which is Milchemet Mitzvah. And the other one is a permissible war, meaning non-obligatory. Now, Maimonides in his book of laws called Mishneh Torah, in the actual closing laws of the entire book, is called Laws of Kings and Their Wars. Now, in chapter five, law one, the Maimonides explains these two wars, the obligatory and non-obligatory war. And he says as follows, a king should not wage other wars before a Melchemet mitzvah. He should not go into any other wars before he first wages the obligatory war. And then he goes on to explain. What is considered as the obligatory war? And he answers, the war against the seven nations who occupy the land of Israel, the war against the nation Amalek, and a war fought to assist Israel from an enemy which attacks them. Those are obligatory wars. Then after that, he goes on with the law and says, afterwards, he, meaning the king, may wage a milchemet harishut. Harishut means that it is non-obligatory, it is permissible. And he explains over here, what is a milchemet harishut? He says, for example, a war fought with other nations in order to expand the borders of Israel or magnify its 
greatness and reputation. And in, in history, King David did a lot of that. Now, the next introduction is when we have a verse in the Torah giving us a commandment about war, we need to know which war it's talking about. So let's see how our Torah portion opens up. Our Torah portion begins with the commandment of a Yefat Toar, a beautiful woman. Okay, what is this commandment? This commandment refers to the laws governing a soldier who chooses to bring back a captive from war, a beautiful woman, to be his wife. The opening verse states, if you go out to war upon your enemies and the Lord your God will deliver him into your hands and you take his captives, right? And the captive over here specifically is talking about when you come across a beautiful woman who you want to have as your wife. Now, the question, however, is which war is the verse talking about? An obligatory war or a permissible war? Now, from the opening of the verse, if you go out to war upon your enemies, it can be speaking about both or either. Why? Because the emphasis in the opening phrase of the verse is upon the words, upon your enemies. When you go out to war, al ovecha, upon your enemies. And what is the emphasis of this phrase? What is it teaching us? It means that one may not be scared when going to war. For the emphasis, he has to realize that this war, he is coming from above his enemy, not equal or definitely, God forbid, not lower, but coming from upon your enemy. What does that mean? What this means is, practically speaking, it is commanding us to see that it is not our war. It is God's war. And thus we see our enemy not as they stand mighty or weak in comparison to us, but as they stand in comparison to God. This is, as we were commanded in last week's Torah portion, there's a verse there that says, when you go out to war against your enemies and you see a horse and a chariot, and it goes on to talk about not being afraid. Now our sages want to know, what do you mean a horse, a chariot, singular? That's not what you're going to see when you go out to war. And the answer is that, it, to quote Rashi, in my, God's eyes, they are all like one horse. Thus we're always being commanded when we go out to war to be upon our enemies, realizing that we don't need to look at them in comparison to us, but to look at them in comparison to God. Now, I, uh, I actually just want to share with you a saying. It's a beautiful, famous saying that says, do not tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big God is. It's that same notion. Now, that is the opening phrase which applies to all wars, the obligatory and non-obligatory. However, let's look what the second phrase of that verse is. And it says over there, and you take his captives. Now, this is a proof that we are speaking specifically of a permissible war, a non-obligatory war. Why? Because from an obligatory war, one is not allowed to bring back any live captives. And thus, Rashi, upon this verse of our Torah portion, where it talks about bringing back a beautiful woman as a wife, he clearly says, and I quote, the verse here is referring to an optional war, non-obligatory, since in reference to the obligatory war to conquer the land of Israel, it would be inappropriate to say, and you take his captives, because it has already been stated regarding the seven nations of Canaan, from these people's cities, you shall not allow any soul to live. So just to share with you, in the obligatory war of conquering Israel, you should know that the law is that you first send them the opportunity to leave in peace, saying that this is the land of Israel that God gave us and we're giving you the choice to move. Even when you go to war with them, 
The Torah tells us you can only circle it from three sides, not to close them in, always giving them a chance to escape. So when we say you're not allowed to leave any of them to live, it means if they choose not to leave, they choose to go to war, then God commands us that they may not remain alive in the land of Israel, lest we learn from their ways. So over here, it's impossible to take a captive and make her your wife. Now, this is in the simple story of the opening commandment of this week's Torah portion. And just to let you know, parenthetically speaking, it's just telling you the laws that you cannot mistreat a female prisoner of war. If you want her to be your wife, you have to marry her or your son marries her. And then she has all the laws of a Jewish wife with all the obligatory protection and caring for and all of that. You're not allowed to sell her to anyone else. You either marry her and give her the respect and protection of a wife or you let her go free. Now, I want to share with you the spiritual, mystical side of this commandment in which we always speak everything within us. Within us, there is the war. Within us, there is the enemy. Within us, there is the beautiful woman captive. What does all that mean? So now we're going to turn to a teaching from the Alter Rebbe, Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi. And he tells us as follows. He quotes, he begins with quoting a line from the Zohar. The Zohar says, Selusa, The time of prayer is a time of war. And thus the Alter Rebbe says that we are talking here about the war of prayer. Now, what is the war of prayer? To understand this, we're going to go back to the, orig the origin of prayer. So our sages say in the Talmud, prayers were instituted based on the daily offerings the sacrifice that were sacrificed in the Holy Temple. Now, what is the spiritual dimension of a sacrifice when we talk within ourselves? So the point of a sacrifice is to take an animal, to place it upon the altar. It should be consumed by the heavenly fire upon the altar, right? So you slaughter the animal and then you bring it upon the altar. What does that mean in, in our dimension that we're talking about? So over here we're talking about the animal is the animal soul within us, the animalistic soul, the egocentric paradigm. And we have to bring that onto the altar of God to have it consumed by the fire of passion, pleasure, love, and desire, the spiritual one, the divine one, the theocentric one, the selfless one. Now, this is the, me the mystical meaning of the opening phrase of our verse. If you go out to war upon your enemy, Remember, we mentioned before the emphasis is al ovecha. You should know that you're not coming up to your enemy. You're not coming parallel to your enemy, but you're coming from upon your enemy. Now I want to share with you a deeper mystical insight to those words upon your enemy. And that is that the verse is telling us, according to the Alter Rebbe, al ovecha, look upon your enemy. And what that means is, look up and see the origin of your enemy. What is the origin of the enemy? Don't see it as or as it's being today manifested as an enemy. Look at this in its spiritual source. Where does this enemy come from? We know that Job says, from above there comes no evil. Everything is pure. Everything is holy. It's just the way it evolves. It goes through contractions and concealments and separations that it can manifest itself in freedom of choice to be used as evil. But in its spiritual source, everything is holy and pure. And now that we understand that the war that we're waging in prayer is the war of sacrifice, the war of having our feet, our egocentric, self-centered, sometimes narcissist perspective of passion, love, 
pleasure, desire, we need to have that transformed into the fire from heaven upon the altar, which means the theocentric, the selfless, love, passion, desire. Now let's understand where does the origin of the animalistic soul egocentric paradigm come from and where does its power of love passion and pleasure originally come from and for this we're going to turn to the book of ezekiel the book of ezekiel the prophet ezekiel begins in chapter one with a prophecy which he calls the prophecy of the chariot which refers to his vision of the spiritual dimensions of god's throne now you'll see over there the chapter i have a link you can read up upon it but what's important for us is he talks about the faces of animals upon the chariot and i'll read to you the verse in ezekiel it says as follows it's verse 10 and the face of a lion was on the right to the four of them and the face of an ox to their left to the four of them and the face of an eagle was to the four of them right and he goes on to say those three animals now what does it mean that there are faces of animals in heaven upon the chariot of god so what it really means according to kabbalah is that each one of these animals and its position right left is all referring to ministering angels for example, the lion that is on the right, which is the, which is the side of kindness, is the archangel Michael, Malach Michael. The ox, which represents in this vision strength on the left side, strength and justice, represents the ox, represents angel Gabriel, Malach Gabriel. And then you have the eagle, which refers in the verses to compassion, a different angel. Now, so what we're seeing here is that up there, when we refer to animal, we're referring to Behema Rabba, an interesting concept that I, I explained in previous lectures, but it talks about the angels as the magnitude, the great animals, and each one manifests a different emotion whether it be kindness, justice, compassion. Now, the animal soul, according to Kabbalah, the animal soul of the human, the human's animalistic soul that fights for its instincts is all about survival, eat, don't be eaten, reproduce to keep the species alive, and, and deals with passion and pleasure. All of that comes from the origin of our animalistic soul comes from those animal faces on the chariot, which means it comes from the archangels. Now, when we talk about this, obviously the angels are absolutely pure. There is no freedom of choice. There can be no sinning. However, the way it goes through all the contractions and the myriads of concealments, all for the sake of creating a realm, our world, in which there can be freedom of choice, thus that manifests itself into the human animalistic soul, which has the freedom of choice to see itself as a mere vehicle for the godly soul, or it can see itself by freedom of choice as egocentric and that the godly soul exists to give it life now this let's just be very practical here these are the two paradigms which you'll come across in modern times one says yolo you only live once so go for it and the other one says no we exist as a divine image we are divine beings having a human experience, and thus it needs to be about the theocentric, selfless love. Now, let's talk about the emotions. Where do the emotions come from? The emotions, this concept of love, passion, desire, it comes from the angels in their service to God. So in Kabbalah, it explains how the angels are in such passion and fervor to serve God, 
to be one with God. It talks about in the Holy Zohar, the sweat of these great angels. And we're taught from the sweat of these angels as it, spiritually speaking, drips down into this world. Thus, in this world, we have this amazing, amazing power of passion, desire, and love. It all comes from the holy passion, desire, and love of our source, our origin in the spiritual animal, in the spiritual realms, which is the spiritual animals, which is the angels and their service to God. Okay. Now, understanding this, we now understand the setup of prayer. Prayer is made, as we said, a time of war. Why? Because in our freedom of choice, what we do through our thoughts, speech, and garments is that we enclose our power of passion and love and yearning into whatever we obsessively think about, speak about, and act about. So let's just take a simple concept. If someone obsessively thinks about money, 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 all he speaks about is money. Every conversation is about how to make money. All he does all day long is coming up with new ways of making money. Simply through his obsessive thought, speech, and action, what he's doing is he's taking the human gift the power of passion, love, and desire, and he's manifesting it into the egocentric obsessiveness of making money. The power of prayer is the war to be able to cut down that obsessive thought, speech, and action, which is now a prison for that godly gift of passion, pleasure, love, and desire, so that we can free them and return them to where they need to be, which is in the selfless relationship with our fellow man, with the world, and with God. And that happens in the ladder of prayer. And now I want to point out specifically how this works. The moment of love in our prayers is primarily in the experience of the Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one, blessed be his glorious name and sovereignty forever and ever. And what's the verse right after that? The Ahafta et Hashem Elokecha, and you shall love God your God. Now, interesting enough, our sages say that before you say that Shema, in order to be able to really embody and experience it, you should first say two blessings. Blessing number one before the Shema and blessing number two before the Shema. Now we'll understand the mystical secrets of those blessings. In blessing number one, we talk about the source of our animalistic soul, which is the angels and how the angels serve God. Let's go ahead and see. I'm going to actually read to you from that first blessing before the Shema. Quote, you, capital Y, you fashion angelic spirits to serve you. In purity and sanctity, they raise their voices in song and psalm extolling and exalting, declaring the power, praise, holiness, and majesty of God, in unison, chanting with reverence, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy are you, God of hosts, who fills, whose glory fills the world. I want to read to you further. As in the, pro as in the prophet's vision, soaring celestial creatures roar, responding with a chorus of adoration. Baruch kevod, Baruch Shem kevod malchuto, lo'olam va'ed, praise be the glory of the Lord throughout the universe. So first we're focusing on the source of the human experience of power, passion, pleasure, desire. And where does that come from? 
the passion, pleasure, their zions of the source and origin of our animalistic soul, which is the angels in their fervent roar, I quote what we just said. Barash Gadol, in the great big roar, they scream out and cry to God passionately, Kadosh, 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 Baruch Shem Kibod Malchutol Olam Va'ed. So the first thing we do is that we meditate and concentrate. Where does passion and pleasure come from? It comes from above. And then let's go on to the next, the next blessing. After we discuss and we realize what passion, pleasure, desire is really all about, then we talk about God's love to us. And I read to you from blessing number two before the Shema. Deep is your love for us, Lord our God, boundless your tender compassion. And only after looking al ovecha upon your enemy, upon the egocentric passion, desire, and love that pulls us astray, when we look upon it, and again, Mystically speaking, upon it means look up to where it comes from. And we realize it comes from the holy passion, desire, and love of the angels towards God. And then we go ahead and we understand the reflection of God's deep love to us. Only then can we truly say, Hear, O Israel, God as is our God, God is one. Blessed be his glorious name and sovereignty forever. And then go ahead and say, And love God your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Because through cracking the prison, the prison of the selfishness, the obsessive thought, speech, and actions of me, 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 me. I want power. I want fame. I want money. I want glory. By going ahead and cracking that and seeing where the true gift of passion, desire, and pleasure comes from and what it's meant to be as a godly being having a human experience, then we're free to say, I love you, God, with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my might. Now, we understand what the verse is talking about. Now we understand when it says when you go out to war upon your enemy and you find a beautiful woman who you want as your wife. Now we understand the beautiful woman is our animalistic soul. And our power of passion, pleasure, and desire, the way it is in its beautiful, divine form. And when we come across this notion, this experience of love, desire, and passion as it's meant to be, you want to take it as your wife. One second, this isn't my enemy. This is my greatest gift. I want to make it my wife. I want to experience true, theocentric, selfless passion in life. And passion in life in its theocentric sense is to help others, to think about others, to think about all of God's creations, all of God's creatures. That's who I want to become. That's what I want to marry. And that is the depths of what this verse is really telling us, which leads us now to a question. Because originally I quoted to you from Rashi that we're talking about a voluntary war. But according to the spiritual understanding of this war, the war of prayer, the war of freeing the prisoners of war, that beautiful woman that was taken captive by the enemy, namely the beautiful power of passion, pleasure, and desire, and to bring it back home. So one second, according to the Alter Rebbe, this is not a non-obligatory war. This is the obligatory war of life. This is what life's all about. 
to go to war with the egocentric prison, obsessive thought, speech, and action. And to go ahead and to free it and to transform it. The whole point of life is to be able to take that the beautiful gift of passion, desire, and love and bring it back home to its theocentric, selfless form. That's not a non-obligatory war. That's an obligatory war of life. And thus we have the question. According to the way the Alter Rebbe explains to us what this verse is really talking about, it is the most obligatory war of human life. The whole reason why the soul descended into this world. To transform the animalistic soul, the true power of passion from egocentric to theocentric, from self-centered to selfless, from thinking only about me to thinking about everyone else. And now let us begin the lecture. So the, the, the bulk of the lecture really was just handled in the, in the introduction. Now we'll be able to let it flow and see how this works. So as always, I share with you what are the mystical concepts we're going to talk about. Mystical concept number one, the peaceful warrior, Torah study. Number two, the double rows of Elul. And number three, two levels of prayer and of Torah study. And now let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So we're going to talk about the peaceful warrior, which is Torah study. The answer to our question that being that the spiritual dimension of war is the war between the Esau and the Jacob within us, the animalistic soul, the godly soul, the egocentric, the theocentric, the selfish and the selfless. Now, how can you say that such a war is non-obligatory? So we're going to explain what that means. And I'm going to tell you the answer in one line. It's because there's another way to win this battle. And that is through the peaceful warrior way. So if there's a peaceful way, then the way of war is not obligatory. That's the answer. Because we have two ways. There's the peaceful way and the way of war. And if there's a peaceful way, then the way of war is not obligatory. And now let's understand what this means. Okay? So it is a choice of each soldier, you, I, everyone, to choose which way they want, the way of war or the way of peace. And of course, we're speaking spiritual war. So let's go ahead and understand this. Hasidus explains that there are two ways through which we can curb, refine, and transform our animalistic soul's self-centeredness. One is from below to above. And what that means in the world of Hasidus, when we talk about from below to above, it means that we engage with the enemy. We're, we're getting down and dirty, so to speak. We're engaging with the enemy in close combat. And that is what the Zohar says when it says the time of prayer is a time of war. In other words, you're engaging with that side of you, which is obsessively thinking, speaking, and acting with self-centeredness. Money, for example, we're using for today the, this example of what, the, what would be the egocentric obsessiveness. Now, when you engage with it and you, you fight it from within, that's called from below to above. And that's what prayer is all about. To engage with the enemy. To understand the enemy. To see the source of the enemy. To see the nakedness of the enemy as the way it is in its beautiful, original, holy source. And from there to transform it. That's from below, above. That's a war. Because you need to go into combat with it. You need to curb it. You need to stop the obsessiveness. You need to question the obsessiveness. You need to redefine the obsessiveness. Thus, that is called from below to above, and that is an engagement of battle, of war, and that's what the Zohar means. A slusa, the time of prayer, is a time of war. However, there is another way. There's a way which is not from below to above, but from above shining down upon the below. And this is what King David speaks about in his book of Psalms, chapter 55, first verse 19. And I quote to you, he, meaning God, 
He redeemed my soul with peace from the battle that came upon me. And there's another verse towards the end of our Torah portion, which states, It will be when the Lord your God grants you respite from all your enemies around you. Again, peace. And so to the verse in Leviticus, And no sword shall pass through your land. And our sages say that no sword means not even a sword of peace. And Rashi explains it means they will not come even to pass through your land from one country to another. There will be total peace. So there's a way of the peace, the peaceful warrior. And what is this? How do we transform the animalistic soul and its obsessiveness in the theocentric thought, speech, and the egocentric thought, speech, and action, which takes prisoner? our beautiful power of passion, love, and desire into its egocentric prison? How do we do that from above? How do we break that and transform that? And the answer is through Torah study. And therefore, we find that concerning the Torah, what does the verse say? What does King Solomon say in Proverbs? It says, its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. What this means is that when one studies Torah, the divinity light within the Torah draws and reveals the divinity into the studier's soul. And that, that, it gives the power to curb, to nullify the evil inclination and transformation of the animalistic soul takes place in a peaceful fashion of bederech memela. What that means is on the way anyway. It happens like automatically. So when we study Torah and we leave the paradigm completely of, of egocentric self, and rather we're studying all about the pleasantness and the ways of peace of God in his Torah, the divinity within the Torah automatically shines into the studier, and that automatically nullifies the egocentric narcissism. And automatically, we're no more dealing with the obsessiveness of me, 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 me. Let's take it further. Thus, while it is true that at the earliest stage in one's life, when he is first starting the journey of his mission with the animalistic soul, the war of prayer is, a prayer is obligatory. However, then he can choose the way of peaceful Torah study, which then means to pick the way of the war of prayer is not non-obligatory. You have a choice. Who says you have to go through war to war through prayer? Throw your life into Torah study. Just lift your head into a total different dynamic. And that too will work. So if you have the choice to do Torah study, the peaceful warrior, the elevation, the shining, the illumination from above to below, which automatically dispels the darkness of the animalistic soul, then if you have that choice, if you choose anyway prayer, that is a permissible, non-obligatory war because you have the option of choosing the peaceful warrior, the Torah study way. Let's move on. The second concept is the double rose of Elul. What, what rose? What are we talking about here? So this time of year that we're in now is the month of Elul. The month of Elul is the last month of the Jewish calendar year. And it is the year, it is the month that brings us to the doorstep of the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Right? So therefore, what is the month of Elul all about? Excuse me, all about? It is known as the month of accounting of doing Teshuvah. Repentance, returning. For all our thoughts, speech, and actions, which were not for the sake of God this past year, this is the month to bring them all back home. Now, in the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, the Teshuvah of the month of Elul, so you see there's two ways to do Teshuvah. One is through bitterness, feeling the ugliness of self. There's another way. And again, this is from the above to below way. So let's read what Elul is the month of compassion, the month of revelation, the month of intimacy with God, a different type of Teshuvah. 
So in these teachings, the Alter Rebbe wants to explain what is the concept of the intimate Cheshuvah experience of Elu. And I quote to you from the teachings of the Alter Rebbe. Before a king enters his city, now in this example, what we're talking about is before the king of kings enters into the capital, the courtroom, the throne room on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So before the king does that, what does he do? Its inhabitants go out to greet him and receive him in the field. At that time, anyone who so desires is granted permission and can approach him and greet him. And then he says, he, the king, receives them all pleasantly and shows a smiling countenance to them all. So we see that the month of Elul is God coming out of the palace, going into the working field where his subjects are, you and I, in the working field of this physical world. And over there, we each are granted to be able to come greet him. And what is God doing instead of noticing how soiled our work clothes are, our work clothes are, it says he receives them all pleasantly and shows a smiling countenance to all. And that is what gives us the desire, the yearning, and the power to do Teshuvah. It's a Teshuvah driven by intimacy and love and not that much by fear of retribution and feeling shame and guilt. Now, let's get into this. The pleasantly and smiling countenance of the metaphor, it refers to the unconditional love and compassion from God to each and every one of us. Now, in Kabbalah and Hasidus, this is the secret of why the month of Elul is called the month of the rose. Why? So let's get to it. King Solomon in the book of Songs, Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 3, verse three he states, Ani I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine who grazes among the roses. Now, the Hebrew spelling of the word Elul, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, is the acronym of the first four words of this verse. Ani lidodi vidodi li. I'll share with you even another secret. The last letters of those four words is Yud, 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 Yud. Now, if each word has a Yud, you have four words, which is four Yuds. So then you have the total number of 40. Yud is numerical value 10. And therefore, when you say four times 10 is 40, in Kabbalah and Hasidus, we explain that this 40 refers to the 40 days which is the 30 days of the month of Elul and the first 10 days of the year, which is called the 10 days of repentance from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Now, now that we understand that this verse is talking about the beautiful, intimate time of Elul, which is the Ani Lidodi Vidodi Li, now we understand what the rest of the verse is also talking about Elul. And what happens in the month of Elul? That God, he grazes amongst the roses. Now, what is this rose of Elul? So the Zohar in volume one, at the very opening, page one, column A, he says that the rose has 13 petals, reflecting the 13 attributes of mercy. And I have a link to you. you can look up what the 13 axes of mercy are and what it means. However, what it means for us is that in the month of Elul, there is the great revelation of the 13 attributes of mercy, which is the infinite compassion and unconditional love of God. And that's what it means when the Alter Rebbe says in his parable that he receives them all pleasantly and shows a smiling countenance to all. Now, the experience of the 13 attributes of mercy is the service of prayer. We say those in the time of prayer. However, there is also another interpretation to the Hebrew word in the verse, which means roses. 
So the word for rose is Shoshanim. That's roses. You'll be familiar there are women that have the Jewish name Shoshana. That means rose. Now, one way of learning it is Shoshanim, roses. However, if you look in the Talmud, when it comes to a different verse in Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 13, the verse says, His lips are like roses, Shoshanim, dripping with flowing myrrh. Now, our sages in the Talmud say, in Tractic Shabbos, page 30, side B, it says, do not read Shoshanim, which means roses, rather read Sheshonim, they are studying. Shoneh means to learn, to study. And the Zohar therefore says upon our verse, that Bishoshanim, what does it mean that he grazes amongst the Shoshanim? Don't read that it means roses, but read that it means the studiers. God in the month of Elul grazes amongst those who study Torah. Thus, we now have in the month of Elul both formats of the Teshuvah that we were talking about before. The 13 attributes of mercy through prayer. Prayer is war. The Zohar says the time of prayer is a time of war. And so too we have the other meaning from the Talmud, which causes the Zohar to say that the Rabbi Shoshanim means Sheshonim, the study of Torah, the peaceful warrior, bringing the light of divinity from above to below, which automatically shines and dispels the egocentric paradigm of the evil inclination. So therefore we see that the month of Elul is connected to the this week's Torah portion going out to war, which means that it's only a non-obligatory war because you can choose to transform your passion, obsession, through the war of prayer, the 13 attributes of mercy, or through the study of Torah, the peaceful warrior. And now let's go to the last concept that we're going to talk about, which is the two levels of prayer and of Torah study. From what we just said, we explain that prayer is the way of war. I'm sorry, just one minute. Sipa, please ask him to stop playing piano. Now, I'm sorry about that, guys. I'm in my sister's house. I'm here for a wedding, and there's a lot of action going on. Going back to what we're talking about, we, we pretty much define that prayer is war, and Torah study is the peaceful warrior. Now I want to share that if you really want to get nitty-gritty and take it to the next level, you'll find that in prayer there is both peaceful and war, and in Torah study there is both peaceful and war. And this makes everything so much more beautiful by telling us that in the month of Elul, we should use the peaceful way, the non-obligatory, the peaceful way of prayer, and the peaceful way of Torah study. And let's see what that means. So we spoke about the 13 attributes of mercy, which is the war of prayer. Let's see what that means over here. Now the 13 attributes of mercy, the 13 petal rose has two dimensions. There's the dimension of the rose in Elul, and there's the dimension of the rose in Yom Kippur, the white rose. So in Yom Kippur, you'll remember that we sing so many times the 13 attributes of mercy. Hashem, Hashem, Telrachum, Vechanon, Erech, Apayim. However, Kabbalah and Hasidus tell us that there's two different dimensions between the rose, the 13 attributes of mercy in the month of Elul and in the month and, and in the day of Yom Kippur. The day of Yom Kippur is the aftermath of the 40 days of Teshuvah. And thus, Vidodi Li is the way God belongs to me. That experience of the intimacy of Yom Kippur. However, the 13 attributes of the first, the first part in Elul, that is Anili Dodi. That is the 13 attributes of mercy which is shining upon us to arouse us and to empower us to do Teshuvah. That means within the 13 attributes of mercy, there is two dimensions. 
There is that which is the aftermath of the below to above. However, there is also that which is the from above to below, which is that process of empowering us, shining upon us from above. That is the peaceful prayer. The prayer which is aroused by God awakens our heart to reach out to him and to pray to him. So in prayer you have the peaceful way, being aroused from above to want to change, and then there's the way from below to above, the war in which you face the mirror and look at yourself and ask yourself, is this what I'm meant to be? So you have a choice, prayer of war, prayer of peace. Torah study also has both. In Torah study, you have two parts of the Torah. You have the revealed Torah, which is the Talmudic methodology in the power and the process of elimination to define the laws. And the law is going to define with, for us the difference between the kosher and the non-kosher, the pure and the impure, the integrity and the deceit. And thus the Talmudic study is called in Kabbalah the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge has both good and evil and it teaches and defines for us the parameters of good, the parameters of evil, and the laws pertaining to each of them. So that study of Torah is more the Torah of war. However, then there is the hidden Torah, which is called the tree of life. And I want to quote to you what the Zohar says about this. But from the side of the tree of life, the hidden Torah, there are no questions of the side of evil and no disputes from the side of impurity. Thus, the study of Hasidus, the mystical, the hidden, is the peaceful warrior. Over here, we're not dealing with the evil and the good and the fight and the disputes and the purity and the impurity, the other side, the holy side. Rather, what we're dealing with here is only the revelation of divinity, of Hashem Echad, the higher levels. And now we understand that when we talk about Elul, when we talk about the Rose of Elul, we're talking about the empowerment, the intimate experience of peaceful prayer and peaceful Torah studies. And with this, we will now close. In closing, let us return to our modern day issue, which we opened up with. A life of war must lead to battle fatigue. Tayenu, enough. How can we just live in war and war and war? And thus the Torah tells us, especially in these times, our generation after so much suffering, millenniums of torture and exile, we're tired. And thus we're taught that in these times, especially in the month of Elul, it is a time to engage in an abundance in the ways of the peaceful warrior, the peaceful prayer, and the peaceful study of Hasidus. My friends, may each and every one of you, each and every one of us be inscribed in the book of life, the book of peace, the book of redemption, the book of health and abundance and love and selfless, beautiful, kosher and pure passion and desire. Shana Tovah.